Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello and welcome to NeuroRounds. This is round nine. We're going to be talking about the brainstem today. Okay, so the brainstem has uh, three different components. It has the, um, the medulla down here at the bottom, the pons in the middle, and the midbrain on top. It has a lot of really important structures in it. So you have a lot of the nuclear groups and the nerve for fibers of the cranial nerves, and we'll go through each of those to talk about them. Um, we have the ascending uh, sensory tracts, from you know, sensory information from the body up to the brain, and we'll uh, briefly go back over those. We have the descending motor pathways from the cortex back down to the body. We also had the reticular formation, which is pretty interesting. We'll spend some time talking about that. And also you had the passage for cerebrospinal fluid to go down. Okay. So first we're gonna talk about the cranial nerves. And there are uh, three kinds of motor nerves. So you have the general somatic ones that control the extraocular muscles of the eyes to help you move as we talked about last week and also movement of the tongue. You have the special somatic motor neurons that um, and control chewing and facial expression, and also uh, muscles to help you speak. You have the general visceral motor neurons, so these control blood vessels and the smooth muscles of the gut. Um, no, sorry, smooth, not, not the gut, this isn't all in the face, sorry. Um, you also have four kinds of sensory nerves, you have the general somatic afferent neurons. So this has uh, touch, pain, temperature, proprioception of the face and mouth. Uh, sorry, it's special. Sorry, I have to change a typo. Special somatic afferent neurons. Uh, it has the cochlea and vestibular apparatus, which has the hearing and vision and balance. You have general visceral afferent neurons. So that has uh, the sensory of internal organs, so the pharynx and the larynx has the mechanical pain, uh, temperature, proprioception as well. And you have the special visceral of the taste buds, which are obviously important for taste and smell. Okay, so there are 12 cranial nerves, so we'll go through each one. Uh, cranial nerve one is for olfaction, so for smell. You could test this by seeing if someone can uh, distinguish between smells. We have number two, which is the optic nerve, which is for sight. And you can test this by seeing if you can read with both eyes and then each eye individually. You have nerve three, which is ocular motor. We talked about this one last week. Um, it's important for eye movements. Um, and you can test this by, if you shine light on one pupil, both pupils should um, dilate. Um, it should also constrict when you're looking at something close and dilate when you're looking at something far. Also the eyes should converge when you're looking at something close and diverge when looking at something far. Motor nerve four is the trochlear one. Uh, again, it's important for eye movements, and we talked about this uh, relative to the sobriety uh, test, the field test, so whenever you're following a pin light back and forth. Uh, nerve five is the trigeminal nerve. We'll talk about this one in more detail, um, but it has both sensory and motor 
um, information coming from it. So you have the sensory, so you have cutaneous and proprioceptive sensations from the skin and muscles of the face and mouth, and also the teeth. And then you have motor control for mastication, which is chewing. So you can test this by, um, you should blink when someone tries to touch your cornea. Uh, also, um, you should have, your face should be sensitive to pain and should be able to distinguish between hot and cold. You have the abducens, uh, which again, we talked about last week, it's important for um, eye movements. Um, so your eyes should move in unison. Uh, nerve seven is the facial and intermediate. Uh, again, it's a mixed nerve that has sensory and motor. So this has the taste sensation for the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. Um, also the uh, skin sensation from the external ear. So um, you can, oh, and then the motor movements for the facial expressions and also salivary glands. So you can test this by seeing if someone can smile and move their face, raise their eyebrows, and then also if they can distinguish between taste. All right, nerve, where are we? Eight, uh, vestibular cochlear. We talked about this when we talked about um, hearing and uh, vestibular. So we have balance and postural uh, reflexes. So you can test this by seeing if someone can hear a wristwatch. And you can also, uh, if they have good posture and balance. Um, nine is a glossopharyngeal, which is another mixed one. So it has the taste from the back part of the tongue and then uh, face and speaking muscles. So we can test this by if you have an appropriate gag reflex and if you can swallow easily. Uh, number 10 is the vagus nerve and it has autonomic uh, because it can control back down to the heart and blood vessels. You have sensory of you know, the speaking muscles and the taste buds back in the epiglottis and the motor of the speaking uh, apparatus. So you can test this by, again, if you can swallow easily, speak audibly. And then you have 11, which is a spinal accessory, and it has uh, motor control of the trapezius and so the muscles of the neck and then the back of the upper back. Um, so you can shrug, lift your head left and right. That's what that does. And the number 12 is the hypoglossal, which is tongue muscles. So you should be able to move your tongue without difficulty. So those are all of the cranial nerves. Okay, um, we're gonna talk about, in specific, the trigeminal system. So just as an example, um, so this one uh, is tri for three. It has three branches, as you can see here. You have the ophthalmic, which is the top part of the face, the maxillary, which has cessation from the middle part of the face, and the mandibular, which is the bottom part of the face, and also, again, for chewing neutral movements. Sensory cells project back to the mesocephalic uh, nucleus, and then motor cells come from the trigeminal motor nucleus it's back in the pons. Okay, this is a much more detailed um, figure to kind of going over the trigeminal system. So again, we have sensory information from the face and the oral cavity. So your tongue, your tooth, uh, tooth pulp and the gums. Um, you have the tactile sensation and this is kind of back here in the uh, primary uh, sensory nucleus. You have the proprioception of the jaw, which is again mediated by the mesocephalic nucleus. And you have uh, temperature and pain, which is mediated by the spinal nucleus back there in the pons. Again, this is important for uh, motor information for mastication, which is chewing. Um, also, interesting note is that uh, for animals that have whiskers, the trigeminal nerve mediates that. There's a lot of nerves, so they each a whisker has a fiber called a barrel, and in each barrel there's uh, 2,500 neurons that um, 
mediate their sense of uh, touch or their whiskers. Um, this is kind of a zoomed out view of the whole system. So again, you have your three branches that go back to the pons, then up through the thalamus and through the sensory cortex. Okay, so I want to talk uh, briefly about uh, clinical um, implication from the trigeminal system. So trigeminal neuralgia is when you have severe face pain, but there's no reason for it. Um, so what they would do is they would uh, cut the nerve root for the fifth uh, nerve, but, and that would help. It would take the nerve pain away. However, it also removes your blinking reflex, which is bad because then your eye will dry out. Um, so then they found through various uh, experiments that depending on how deeply in the nucleus you cut, you can um, sever more or less uh, functions and features. So they just don't cut as deep and then they get the pain and you can still have the blinking reflex. Okay, so we talked um, over the you know, past couple weeks about the various ascending tracts. I'll just mention them briefly here. So you have the dorsal column medial lemniscal system. And so that um, carries sensation from touch, vibration, and joint position. You have the lateral spinothalamic tract, and this has sensation from pain and temperature. Um, then you have the spinocerebellar tract, which has information about your body position and space, and then relative to other body segments. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the articular formation. So we're going, of course, through all the different structures of the brainstem. So we did all the cranial nerves, ascending tracts, and now the articular formation. So this is kind of distributed throughout the medulla and the pons. So it's all throughout here. And um, this is kind of a small picture, but all these little purple segments here. So it has four functions. The most common one is for alertness. Um, so Giuseppe Maruzzi in the 1940s did experiments where he had deeply anesthetized animals and he stimulated their, uh, their articular formation and they found in their EEGs that they went from a state resembling sleep to one resembling wakefulness. So that's how they first got the idea of that. But they've since done a lot more research and they found the articular activating system, um, which is very diffuse. So it starts here, it goes out through the cortex, um, and it kind of deals with your attentional state and also is a bit of a filter. So this is why when you had the cocktail party effect, for example, you're sitting in a room and you can't hear what people are saying, but someone says your name, that's important. So that comes through your attentional filter of the reticular activating system. Um, also facilitates conscious perception. Um, so they had different parts of it. You had the inhibitory parts and the excitatory part. And if the inhibitory part is weak, and you'll have symptoms of like ADHD. So you're not able to attend to what you need to attend to because everything else is interfering. Um, the if the excitatory part is weak, so if it doesn't keep you awake and attentive, then you'll be passive and fatigued. And you'll see this a lot in chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, it also participates in the fight or flight response. So this is very overreactive and PTSD. So you'll have the exa exaggerated startle reflex. Also, you'll have a decrease in habituation so you hear a book fall or something, and then that startles you. But if it keeps on happening, you should eventually habituate to it and not respond. Um, but when this um, system is not working properly, you will constantly have that startle reflex, and it will constantly scare you. Um, you also have dysregulated sleep, so you'll have insomnia, nightmares, and frequent awakenings. Okay, uh, it also has three other functions. So one is muscle tone which is obviously important for motor function. 
You have breathing and cardiac functions that control the diaphragm and also can affect uh, the heart rate uh, relative to appropriate stimuli, so it can accelerate or decelerate the heart rate. And it can also modulate the pain sense, so it can influence the pain, uh, the information flow from the dorsal horn. So as we talked about, we talked about the somatic, somatosensory system, everything comes in through the dorsal horn and up through the brain, so this can uh, mediate how much information is going up to the cortex. The articular formation also has a lot of um, centers for really important neurotransmitters. So one of these is noradrenaline, also called norepinephrine, and that also plays a role in the fight or flight um, response. And it says two kind of loci. One is the locus coryleus here, and um, that is important for activating, it's being activated by novel stimuli. So it can help you to orient and attend to uh, contrasting or aversive um, sensory stimuli. Also have the lateral tegmental neurons, and that's important for autonomic functions uh, like heart rate and blood pressure. So if you see something, like a spider comes in, you're like, oh my gosh, there's a spider, and then your blood pressure increases, or that might just be me, but anyway. <laughs> um, so the, uh, this pathway is really important for a number of different things. So um, obviously for wakefulness and attention, but also emotional and episodic memory, um, stress response, um, attention and behavioral flexibility, uh, stress detection and pain, um, and then again, kind of motor functions. So it plays a role all throughout the brain. So it's important for just about everything. Um, also uh, has centers, uh, centers for dopamine, which has been kind of the pleasure hormone, but it's really more for motivational salience. And this is relevant for executive function and motor control. So we talked about this, we talked about the basal ganglia and it's important for um, helping you do movements that you want and inhibiting movements that you don't want, like tremor. Um, when you, it has different kind of pathways that it um, has here in the picture. If you damage the mesostriatal uh, system, then you'll have Parkinson's syndrome, as we talked about. Um, also, you have the mesolimbic and the mesocortical. They're not exactly sure precisely its function, but they think it has to do with um, plays a role in cognition. Just want to talk about an interesting study I read uh, that's relevant here. So uh, they found that there is a, you know, the pathway from the midbrain plays a role in trauma mediating psychosis and borderline personality disorder. So borderline personality disorder is borderline between psychosis and neurosis. So some of you clinicians might be know more about this specifically, but uh, in general, a lot of these patients have childhood trauma that might be physical or sexual abuse or emotional neglect. And as adults, whenever they have an emotional stress, that can trigger a psychotic episode. Um, the theory is that if you have early life trauma, then that can modify the dopaminergic system in the, in the midbrain, such that um, when you ha it triggers psychotic episodes, both in borderline personality and also schizophrenia. So what they found is they showed uh, people who have borderline personality disorder and uh, normal controls, uh, pictures of faces that are either um, happy or neutral or angry, and they found that uh, those who have borderline personality disorder, there is um, increased activation in the midbrain, and the extent to which it was activated uh, correlated with the psychotic symptoms they had, especially symptoms of uh, perse persecution. They also found a role of the cuneus, which is not in the brainstem, it's in the occipital lobe. 
uh, is also activated. So they, when you see neutral faces, these people will perceive them as fearful. Um, and that has a role in uh, processing visual information, perceiving uh, faces, and it also has a role in theory of mind. So what I think about what you think. Um, so it's a whole, again, this whole network, and we're all about networks here at INS. Um, so again, these childhood traumas changes the way that the dopamine system in the midbrain mediates um, all of this. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and I have the citation here if you want to read more about it. Uh, okay, also uh, in their reticular formation, you have serotonin. And those centers are in the RAF nuclei, which is these sections here. And serotonin is important for stabilizing mood, uh, feelings of well-being and happiness. It also is really important for synaptic transmi transmission of action potentials. Um, it plays a role for sleeping and eating and digestion. So if you have too little serotonin, you'll be depressed or have symptoms of depression. If you have too much, then you'll have excessive nerve activity. So it's important that these are regulated. Okay, so now I'm gonna talk about some different uh, clinical manifestations of the brainstem. So I read another study, it has to do with the medulla's role in depression and the major depressive disorder. So uh, symptoms here are sustained negative affect and diminished positive affect. Um, and the theory behind this is that there's aberrant uh, nerve, uh, sorry, aberrant interactions of brain networks. So um, they're thinking that there's, again, this kind of connected brain network that starts in the medulla and goes up through the limbic system of the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the hypothalamus. And what they found is then relative to healthy controls that people with uh, major depressive disorder had increased connectivity between the medulla and the inferior parietal cortex. Uh, the inferior parietal cortex does a lot of stuff, um, attention, action inhibition, social and spatial cognition, but they um, hypothesize that this increased connectivity um, is related to the deficits you see in these patients with motor learning, execution, inhibition, and cognition, specifically working memory and attention. So, you know, we think about these, all these kind of things being done in the cortex. There's also a lot of role that the midbrain plays in the way that the rest of the brain works. Um, okay, another cl uh, clinical syndrome is an extra axial lesion, uh, an example of which is an acoustic neuroma. So this is um, a tumor of the sheathing of the cells around the uh, acoustic nerve, which is nerve eight. And so this uh, tumor kind of grows back here, kind of in the, you know, the angle between the cerebellum and the pons. So the first thing you'll see is a ringing in the ears and a loss of hearing. Um, and that's not good, but it, it gets worse. <laughs> Uh, if it grows and then it kind of compresses on the trigeminal nerve, then you'll have the loss of the corneal blink reflex, so uh, you won't blink and your eyes will dry out again. If it gets even bigger than that and compresses the facial nerve seven and the cerebellum, then you'll have facial paralysis. And if it gets really bad, um, it can um, compress the cerebrospinal fluid tracts and that could cause hydrocephaly. And that's not good. You would definitely want to get that out of the brain. Um, so the good news is that the tumors are benign and they are accessible for surgical removal, but you just kind of need to be aware of the signs and get it out before it gets to this level. Okay, so um, there are different syndromes that can happen if you have lesions on different parts of the midbrain. So for example, the, if you have a lesion on the medial, which is the inside part of the medulla, this can affect the hypoglossial nerve. 
And so you'll have weakness and wasting of the, that side of the tongue. So it's the ipsilateral side of the tongue. If you affect the inside part of the pons, you will affect the abducens nerve. So then the lateral rectus muscle that moves the eye to the temporal will be affected. So the eyes will kind of drift towards the center. Again, if it affects the paramedian pontine reticular formation, we talked about this last week, it controls eye movement. So if you affect that, then um, you'll, you won't be able to control your eye movements. Um, and then you can also have um, some symptoms of the vestibular and cerebellar connections. So you'll have nystagmus of the eyes, so it's kind of repeated and uncontrolled eye movements. If you have lateral lesions of the medulla and the pons, you have six common manifestations. Um, you can affect the spinothalamic tract, and you'll have a contralateral loss of pain and temperature sensations. So if the uh, lesion is on the right side, you won't be able to feel the left side, uh, pain and temperature. You can affect the descending autonomic fibers. Um, so this can um, actually have a syndrome called the Horner syndrome. So you'll have small pupils, uh, but they will react to light. You also have drooping eyelids, and you'll have increased or decreased sweating on the opposite side of the face. Uh, you could affect the sensory trigeminal nucleus in the descending tract, and you'll have uh, it's a lot of loss of cutaneous sensation. So that side of the face, you won't be able to feel. You'll have vestibular connections. Uh, if those are affected, then you have nystagmus and nausea. Um, obviously, if you feel like you're not balanced, then that makes you feel nauseous. Um, if you affect the cerebellar connections, you'll have ataxia, so you can't move that side of the body. And for whatever reason, you'll have hiccups. Uh, they haven't figured out what the cause of that is. So if you have um, lateral lesions of medulla, you'll have some combination of those six common, common manifestations. Also, you could affect the glossopharyngeal and the vagal nerve, and you'll have trouble swallowing, and then also you'll be, have a hoarse voice. Um, and then if the solitary nucleus is involved, you'll have a loss of taste as well. If you have lateral lesions at the lower pons, you'll have those six common manifestations. In addition, um, you could affect the facial and the auditory nuclei. So you'll have facial paralysis, you'll have deafness and tinnitus with so the ringing in your ears. Um, and then if you have lateral lesions at the mid pons, you'll have those six manifestations. And also you could um, lose or have difficulty in chewing if, if it's a bilateral lesion. If it's only a lesion on one side, then the jaw will kind of drift towards that side of the lesion because you'll lose control of the chewing uh, muscles. Okay, and then finally, if you have a bilateral lesion of the ventral pons, um, and this can interrupt the uh, corticobulbar and the corticospinal tracts, and the manifestation here is that you are a quadriplegic, you're unable to speak, you can't move your face at all. Um, so this resembles coma, but the eyes are awake, uh, the eyes are open and they can move. The patient is fully conscious and awake. Um, this is what they call locked-in syndrome. They can communicate by using their eyes. They'll have a computer and it will trace their pupil movements and they can communicate that way. And that is the brainstem. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction 
between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.